Welcome to Hence the Future podcast. I'm Justin Clark. I'm Adamar Cronin. And today we're discussing the future of Hong Kong. Uh, there's a lot going on right now. And, you know, before we get into the uh, predictions of the future of Hong Kong, uh, Matamor, maybe let's talk a little bit about what's going on. You know, what's the context of Hong Kong? Right. So there have been 12 weeks of protests in Hong Kong. And these have been the most massive protests in China since the Tiananmen Square protests in 1989. So this is pretty big as far as uh, history is concerned. And some context of what started these protests. So there was a Hong Kong couple and for Valentine's Day, they went to Taiwan and the boyfriend returned safely, but the girlfriend did not. They found out that the boyfriend had killed the girlfriend and when he was back in Hong Kong, they wanted to try him for that crime to serve justice. But mm -hmm. what they found out is that because of some technicality in the law, there was no, he had to be tried where the crime was committed in Taiwan, but there was no current extradition bill to send uh, a defendant to another territory. So mm -hmm. they basically created this bill that not only would allow criminals to be extradited to Taiwan from Hong Kong, but also allowed extradition to mainland China. So I think first, like before we delve into it deeper than that, it's mm -hmm. just worth noting how non ish like how not big of an issue this is as far as like, it's just a small technicality in the law. Like I mm -hmm. could see if, if they were, if the victim was Taiwanese, for instance, then I could see an argument for, oh yeah, like he should be tried in Taiwan because he killed a Taiwanese citizen. But since they were both Hong Kongers, mm -hmm. to me, it seems like it would make the most sense that they're tried in Hong Kong. You know, one Hong Konger kills another one. They should be tried in their, in their, you know, homeland. So yeah. it doesn't, it, it seems totally just like a cover, uh, an opportunity really for mainland China to exert more control. And, you know, really what's at stake here is this would allow mainland China to exert its rules and laws on the people in Hong Kong who have enjoyed some degree of independence, um, freedom mm -hmm. of press, freedom of speech, rule of law that people in mainland China have not enjoyed. And that's, that's big. They're fighting for their future. And it's, it's really inspiring to see these videos of people have been singing the, the American national anthem. You know, we've seen videos of protesters tearing down facial recognition towers. I mean, it's just incredible. Like, mm -hmm. so. Yeah. You, I mean, it, just to kind of further your point a little bit, uh, China can bring people and, you know, try them on the in the mainland for anything they deem necessary it's not just like necessarily um law breaking people like it could just well okay i guess it's law breaking people in the eyes of but china but what does that even mean it's yeah it's the communist party above the rule of law mm -hmm. is is basically the way that they've stated it and i think it's helpful to just give a little bit of context of history of Hong Kong yeah, yeah. and of China, because that'll give people an idea of what's why it's so mm -hmm. crucial right now. So Hong Kong in 1842 
was ceded from China to Britain in the first Opium War. So basically, before then, China had opened up its trade a little bit, but it had a lot of things that the West wanted to buy, um, like tea, for instance, or spices or things of that nature. But there wasn't really anything that China wanted to buy from the West. They pretty much had everything they need ex until opium was was brought to China. And then all, everyone in China just absolutely went crazy for opium and it got to a point where the government was so concerned that they basically said, you know, no more opium. We're not going to allow any more British ships coming here and selling our people opium. And it got came to this point where they basically held this British admiral hostage and said, like, you know, we're, you know, give us all your opium. And he said, OK, yeah, I'll give it to you. And then the British will pay for it. Turns out rather than the British paying for it, they actually came with their fleet and they basically took over Hong Kong and they even took over parts of mainland China. And then they came to a negotiation where they said, OK, you know, for the next hundred years, Hong Kong will be over our control. And it was sort of a way for the West to have a node of connection with the East. And that's really been the main value in China or in Hong Kong since then. It's been this place where whenever businesses want to do business with China, they always go to Hong Kong first. They write the agreements there because they don't have to worry as much about laws or, you know, freedom of press or that sort of thing. And they have really favorable uh, tax incentives in Hong Kong as well. So it's, some, it's just a financial hub. In yeah. And it, it got to the point where they were accounting for almost 30 percent of all of China's GDP in like you know, the 60s and 70s and 80s. Yeah. Now it's only about 3% of China's GDP because the rest of China has gone through an, an amazing transformation and modernization in the last couple decades. Mm -hmm. So that was in 1842. In 1989, that was the Tiananmen Square protest. That is pretty much marks the end of resistance to the Communist Party in mainland China. Like you can think of that as when the Chinese Communist government had complete control of the mainland, more or mm -hmm. less. In 1997, that's when Britain actually gave back Hong Kong to China under the one country, two systems. And that's what they're on right now, where mm -hmm. it's still part of China. But like we said, they have certain freedoms that people on the mainland do not. They can use a lot of technologies too. Like they can use Facebook, they can use YouTube. Like there's some there's some freedoms and freedom from the censorship from the mainland, which is super important. And probably yeah. one of one of the uh, main uh, stems of concern. Like they have better information and haven't been fed a whole bunch of propaganda from the mainland, unlike the mainland China, China mainlanders in right. China. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. I mean, that struck me as well as being the biggest difference is really the reality that people in these two different places inhabit. Yeah. One is very similar to the West where they have access to all the same information. You know, they can go on Wikipedia and search Tiananmen Square. They even hold mm -hmm. a vigil every year for the protesters who died in Tiananmen Square, the hundreds, oh. if not thousands of protesters who died. And that would mm -hmm. never fly on the mainland. But since 
it was handed over, the plan was that Hong Kong would have its same full autonomy until the year 2047, at which point it would fully integrate back to the, the mainland. And the idea from Britain's perspective was that, oh, well, you know, as more wealth comes to any country, they tend to become more democratic, more free trade. So Britain was thinking, and Margaret Thatcher, who did the deal, was basically thinking, oh, yeah, by 2047, you know, China will be a lot like the West. And there'll be the same sort of freedoms that already exist in Hong Kong. That's not what's happened. Instead, what's happened is China has increased its authoritarian grip over its people, including Hong Kongers. And a few examples of that are in 2012, China implemented the patriotic pro-Chinese education system in Hong Kong. So this is basically you know, getting the, the propaganda to kids in Hong Kong at a young age so that they have the same sort of mental thought patterns as people in mainland China as they grow up. In 2014, five Hong Kong booksellers disappeared. Yeah. They were basically apprehended by secret police. And, and that was because they were, what, selling books that were against Xi Jinping? Exactly. It's it's very similar to like 1984 or Fahrenheit mm -hmm. 451. I mean, it's just incredible when you think about the fact that this, not only does it exist today in 2019, but it's the biggest world power outside of the US. Like it's mm -hmm. the other side of the coin of human civilization is this 1984 reality. It's, it's, it's completely yeah. mind blowing to me. And then that sparked, the after the booksellers were, were captured, that sparked uh, the umbrella movement. And basically all of these protesters with umbrellas to you know shield them from the tear gas and batons of policemen, they occupied for 79 days, they did a peaceful protest. And the government basically just waited them out. They didn't impose too much force. They did impose like tear gas and rubber bullets and stuff, but they didn't kill anyone like they did in Tiananmen, or at least not many people. Mm -hmm. But they waited it out until people got tired and they went home. And so the protest didn't really accomplish much. Yeah. In the protest, the motivation from what I understand is Hong Kongers uh, viewed or they, they thought that or they claimed that Beijing uh, reneged on an agreement to give them open elections. So that it was sort of a way to protest, you know, w we want to at least be somewhat democratic. Like we want yeah. to. They wanted a real democracy because yeah. the democracy they have right now is, a f is sort of a fake democracy because basically they have 30 seats that are direct that are directly elected. Mm -hmm. They have 30 seats that are basically just chosen by Beijing. Mm. And then they have five seats that are chosen by the democracy, but they only can pick from the candidates that Beijing has said are, yeah. are acceptable. So <laughs> the they, ones that love Beijing enough. Right. So they've, they've basically uh, structured the system in such a way that they'll always have majority control mm -hmm. of parliament in Hong Kong. And so the so-called chief executive in Hong Kong, which is like their president of the city, doesn't really have much power. They're, they've gone through like four or five of these chief executives in like the last decade. They keep swapping them out because the people won't really accept it. Mm -hmm. 
And yeah, and so that brings us to 2019 when there's this extradition bill. The people in China realize, oh shit, I could be, I could disappear one day and find myself in a re-education camp in mainland China for something I said online. So all of these people flock to the streets. They even occupied the Hong Kong airport, shutting it down for days. Um, Beijing put out a statement saying that any protester, especially ones in the airport, face potential life imprisonment if they keep protesting. But these protests have not stopped. They've continued. They're still going on right now. And, you know, and then I guess looking into the future, by 2020, that's when China plans to have the social credit system fully in place. And that's basically, you know, we've talked about it before, but it's basically giving a point system to everything you do in your day-to-day life as measured by what Beijing considers to be, you know, good or nefarious activities. Mm-hmm. And are you saying that would be in Hong Kong as well or in 2020? Yeah. So, well, if so I, I looked online for this and the statement from Beijing is that, yes, this will be throughout all of China. Some people in Hong Kong deny it and they say that, no, that's not going to be in Hong Kong that early. But even if it's 2021 or 2022, it seems unlikely that they'd be able to put off that whole system unless like these protests get to such a point that it spreads to the mainland. And I mean, I I don't want to get too much into that because we should save it for the future scenarios. Mm -hmm. But I think it's worthwhile to give this context of everything that's come up to this point for Hong Kongers. Yeah. And I heard, or I read, I think it was uh, the New York Times that mentioned that two, two million out of the seven million population in Hong Kong have been out protesting. Yeah. Massive support. Yeah. And, and what's crazy too is to see the difference between the Hong Kongers point of view and the mainland China citizens' point of view. And, you know, maybe we should talk about that a little bit because it's a really interesting contrast. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they they talked about it also in the Daily Podcast where they interviewed mm-hmm. some people who were talking to mainlanders in the Hong Kong airport trying to express why this is an important cause to get behind and trying to get some support from the mainlanders. And the mainlanders by and large, look at the Hong Kongers like they're crazy. They're like, look, you have a roof over your head, you have abundant food, you live in this ritzy city by the sea, you know, what's what's wrong? As long as you're safe and well-fed, why do you care about these abstract ideals like democracy and free information? Like, who, who gives mm-hmm. a shit? Like, just yeah. let the government do, like the government knows best kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. And the other thing they mentioned on that, uh, the daily podcast is the mainlanders also view some of this as some of these protests and this uprising and uproar as um, foreign intervention to create unrest in China. So their their um, view is, and maybe this is what they're being told through yeah. mainland China outlets, uh, the media outlets, but that the U.S primarily is interfering in Chinese demo- or Chinese, you know, society and right. creating this this huge unrest and it's it's all about the US creating conflict. So 
the mainlanders just want to not fall into the trap of the U.S. intervening, you know, in foreign affairs, which yeah. I will I will say, and I hold the opinion that the U.S. is probably doing some of that. It's probably I true disagree. To some I disagree because I don't think, think so? it, I don't think it fits with what Trump's whole positioning is for the trade wars. He's come out publicly in support of President Xi, saying that he's done a great job with handling the protesters and that. It's an internal issue for China and that we shouldn't get involved. So I think for economic stability and so that the trade talks go well, Trump and his administration are highly incentivized for things to go smoothly, which is why he hasn't spoken out in support of the protesters like someone like Obama would. But it's so deeply ingrained in their propaganda of the state media that Westerners and bureaucrats and these colonials in their tweed suits and their cigars these are the real enemies and Mm -hmm. you know last night i kind of wanted to get into the cultural mindset of hong kongers so i watched the movie it man uh ip man and it's basically about like the this great kung fu guy who was bruce lee's teacher and i had actually watched uh it man one in college and so I watched It Man 3, which came out in like 2015, and it takes place in Hong Kong, and it's a joint movie production between Hong Kong and China. And one thing that really struck me is that there was never an evil character that was Chinese. The only evil characters were Westerners. And so there were like situations in the movie where there was like corrupt police but it was always because the police were taking money from Westerners. And when you actually find like the guy that's the main bad guy, he's like this white man with a beard and like a nice business suit. And he's like talks in a British accent. And, oh, no. And it's just, it's just, uh, I mean, it's amazing because when you think of like most American movies, they're usually just unapologetically you know, showing how corrupt the system is and these bad cops and people incentivized yeah. by money. And mm-hmm. it's it's like we, we don't have any sort of sense of like the Americans always need to come off well in American movies. In fact, quite often it's the opposite. But in mm-hmm. China, you'd be hard pressed to find any media where any Chinese official or policeman or anyone like that is even given the smallest shade of negative light. Mm-hmm. So it's, I, yeah. I think also when you see these types of movies, because there are probably countless cartoons and things that uh, mainland Chinese children are watching, you know, from the age of, you know, basically from the time they're born. And when they see someone evil in a movie, it is probably a Westerner. Yeah, exactly. I would be, I would be very interested to go and do like, media history research on like Chinese Chinese movies especially right. children's movies to see who the bad guys are um, yeah I and- mean, yeah it's almost like I get the sense that if you just think of each country as like a person mm-hmm. it's almost like China has this this uh, insecurity complex and part of it goes back to the opium wars where up until the opium wars Everyone thought China was this great power that had this, you know, these spices and the Silk Road and all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. But after the first opium war, they realized you could kind of push China around. 
And so a lot of Western countries came in and they took parts of China. They made all of these deals that weren't great for, for Chinese. And that's in Chinese history, that's considered the decade of great humiliation where China was showed to not be as strong as people had previously thought. But since World War II, they've just been doing everything in their power to defy that perception of them and to just be as strong and maintain control. And it's almost like because it's been going well, they're afraid that if they, you know, let some information seep in or give their give their people a little more autonomy, like they won't know what to do with it and they'll misuse it and it'll be bad for them. Whereas America, if America's a person, it's somewhat sort of like, you know, the gun wielding cowboy that like busts into the <laughs> saloon and just shoots like haphazardly and then like this and then asks questions later. Like, so we don't have that is that issue of at all of like not trusting our citizens with information. It, like every argument in America is about how like, oh, we need to give our people more rights. And how can you tell me that I can't? you know, keep a bazooka yeah. in the trunk of my car. And <laughs> so it's, yeah. it's amazing when you think of the cultural difference and the mindset. And mm -hmm. it's similar, but to a lesser degree with the difference between Hong Kongers and mainlanders. Yeah. Yeah. And, and both countries have their flaws. But if I were to choose, you know, a thousand times which country I want to be born in, I know which one I would choose and that would be, you know, the guns. I would rather be the gunslinging, you know, even if even if there are some flaws. Right. I would still, you know, rather be here where there is freedom. And and that's something we've talked about a lot that freedom is kind of the ultimate it it leads to the ultimate happiness. Like if we were to design a society or a utopia, freedom would be the cornerstone. The master value. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's just one of those things where it's it's hard for us to really put our um, to put ourselves in the shoes of mainland Chinese people because we we haven't grown up in that society. And it seems like there are a lot of happy people in China. Yeah. Um, but I, I also wonder how much of that is, you know, we we uh, recently spoke about uh, the Portal podcast with Eric Weinstein, and he spoke to, I forgot his name recently, but they talk about falsified preferences. Right. Where people, when they speak to each other, they tell each other that they have certain preferences, they have certain opinions, and so on. In China, this is absolutely necessary because if you speak out to any extent or if you're a Hong Kong person and you speak out against China but you have family in the mainland, those people right. are going to be prosecuted. And it's one of those things that is really bothersome and it, it, it creates this control or it, it gives China this control that is you know, almost universal. And they can extend this power to people that, you know, live in the U.S. And I think there was a right. podcast um, episode uh, from New York Times, The Daily, where one guy, you know, moved to the U.S. and was an outspoken critic of China. And his mother was sent to a re-education camp. And they, you know, give updates to him about that situation. Yeah, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty rotten by Western standards. But I think you, you made a good point that 
it's easy to completely vilify China, but people who live in China may have a different perspective. And I know we recently talked to our friend Anna, who mm-hmm. is from China, her in our family's from China. And she says that the Western media often does make China out to be more of a villain than the people in China would consider it to be. And part of that's because a lot of Chinese, a lot of mainlanders feel like the intention is in the right place. It's just that there is such a strong sense of the ends justify the means that they're willing to do these horrible means. Like you said, Mm -hmm. locking up someone's grandma to prevent them from speaking out against the government. I mean, that's that's horrible. I don't care where you're born or where you're from. Mm -hmm. That's not that's not okay, especially if the grandma or or the mom didn't do anything wrong or harm anyone else. Like from my understanding, she was just living a peaceful life as a as a Muslim Chinese person in the Uyghur Mm -hmm. region of northern China. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it's I completely agree with you that if I were to choose where to live, I'd rather have a little extra danger with a lot Mm -hmm. more freedom than something that feels like you're living in a simulation where you're not really getting the real facts. You're not really allowed to say what you mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everything's safe and you have a job and a bite to eat and whatever, but it just feels like a, a far less fulfilling life than one in which you can freely express yourself and you don't have to like narrow your perspective at all so that it's in line with state doctrine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think too, just to kind of further that point, when you don't have that sort of freedom of thought and you're you're given bad information, the thing that sort of gives me hope about the long-term future is the fact that if you don't have the best information, you can't necessarily make the best decisions. You can't necessarily innovate the most effectively. If, if you don't know truly what, what the nature of reality is or where, where you stand socially or really anything else, this, this sort of disillusionment probably leads to bad innovation or slower innovation and that's something we've sort of seen we've seen that some some things move more slowly in china but but the other thing is we see that some things move way faster because there is a lot more control so i'm a little conflicted on how i think this will play in the long term if i think that you know china is going to be a powerhouse of innovation and well, have you heard of the 2025 vision? That I've heard of it, but I, I don't know many of the details. Yeah, so China put out this 2025 vision, which is basically they want to dominate all of the main emergent technological sectors by mm-hmm. 2025. And that includes AI, robotics, machine learning, aerospace, automotive, self-driving cars, you name it. Um, they want to dominate it. And they're doing a pretty good job of getting there. So whereas in the past, you know, since World War II, China has basically been the de facto manufacturer for U.S. Mm -hmm. companies. And there's been a great relationship where we've both benefited a lot. But now it's getting to the point where China is well poised to actually surpass the U.S. in its ability to deliver on these emergent technological fields and that's what yeah. we're seeing play out not just in china and the u.s but across the globe 
with mm-hmm. 5G and, and all of the infrastructure they're building in Africa. And mm-hmm. it's almost like a whole separate system of how to run the world than the system that Western allies have put together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it seems like a lot of this is... Um... They do have state-run capitalism. China does. So it's like it's not like they are just completely communist and are being completely controlled by the government. So there's this it's this really interesting way to run a government. I don't necessarily agree with it at all. Um, but it seems like there's a lot of companies that are starting to be built in China, like in Shenzhen, which is being touted as you know the new Silicon Valley or um, I forgot exactly what its its uh, nickname is, but mm-hmm. it's basically where tech is on the rise and it's crazy. This this old farm town basically is shooting up skyscrapers on the daily, and companies are uh, being started there nonstop. And I think it has the highest um, per capita rate of new billionaires. Uh, right now so like a lot of successful companies are being started in Shenzhen yeah I mean they Chinese businesses have the advantage of the government can pull a lot more strings for them if there's Mm -hmm. a strategic reason to support a company or a particular technology Mm -hmm. so they can do so much business within China they can get a lot of help from the government and you know there's also the record of them you know, as Trump would say, stealing the IP, which is not untrue that, you know, there's I've, I've heard one estimate of about $50 billion worth of IP goes to China each year that is essentially stolen. And mm-hmm. I think this brings us to another topic we should touch on, which is the trade war, because that could have uh, big imp- implications for the future of Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. So. I think a good place to start with the trade war discussion is actually with Trump's tweets, because this sort of shows. And you know, I don't usually we don't usually ever quote Trump's tweets on this podcast, but it's worth noting here. I think. Yeah. So here it is. Our country has lost stupidly trillions of dollars with China over many years. They have stolen our intellectual property at a rate of hundreds of billions of dollars a year, and they want to continue. I won't let it happen. We don't need China, and frankly, would be far better off without them. The vast amounts of money made and stolen by China from the United States year after year for decades will and must stop. Our great American companies are hereby ordered. Our great American companies are hereby ordered to immediately start looking for an alternative to China, including bringing your companies companies home and making your products in the USA. So. Wow. I don't usually (laughs) agree with Trump. But I must say, I kind of agree with him. And on this, I, I don't on this, on this topic. Yeah. And I don't think, you know, obviously, an American president cannot order companies to do anything that's completely against the Constitution. But I think strategically, Trump is right in the sense that we had a very imbalanced trade with China since World War II. And that was intentional. We were the country that was the wealthiest in the world and the most powerful. China wasn't even close. So we made trade deals with China and with other countries that favored the other countries to sort of help bring them up to our level of wealth so that we can have a long-term successful partnership. 
So, but now, you know, when we've had such trade imbalance for so long and IP secrets have been stolen, and there's also the fentanyl issue where kind of like the opium war, China's been sending us fentanyl and killing like 50,000 Americans a year. Um, wow. Not intentionally, but it's like, it's a big problem you can't overlook. Right. And it's something the Chinese government could stop if they really wanted to. Mm-hmm. When you take all this into consideration, it does seem like if we're ever going to make a stand against China, now is the time. Especially because if you just look at the growth curves of China and the U.S., we're like right coming up to that point where the U.S. Where we intersect. Exactly. Okay. Where China becomes more powerful and wealthy. So if we don't renegotiate trade now, then when would we? Like 20 years or 10 years from now after yeah. the 2025 vision's been fully realized? Like, so I kind of think it is the right time to have trade negotiations, maybe not a trade war. And the other thing is, I think we should have done it with other countries, not just going off on our own, but with the support of Europe. And so I don't necessarily agree with the way Trump is going about it. But I do agree with the fact that this if there's it's either now or never, essentially. Yeah. Oh, I, I totally agree with that. So The technological war is another big factor that could change things. As we talk about the future of Hong Kong, a big part of how free their speech is and how free their information is, is dependent on technology. Things like VPNs, Tor browsers, anonymous apps like Telegram. If technology makes it very difficult to control information, that would have a big impact on the future of Hong Kong. If, on the other hand, the technology for controlling information continues to advance and overtake the technology for being anonymized, then it seems like the scale will tip very quickly in favor of a unified China. Mm-hmm. So that's a big factor. You know, AI in general is a big factor. Elon Musk and Jack Ma of Alibaba just had this tech conference where they talked about artificial intelligence. And I mean, the first thing that Elon said in the, in the presentation was that most people underestimate the power of AI, the potential of AI, where people think it's more like being a super smart human, but really it's like just another level that you couldn't really comprehend, like a chimpanzee trying to comprehend like human society. Right. So how that plays out is seems to me like one of the biggest factors of all. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, especially with these protests, they're very well organized. They use technology and mm-hmm. they're pretty good at evading police and evading surveillance. So that seems like the forefront of the war to me, but or the war of information. But I'm, I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I'm. I'm trying to think of what it would look like. Let's say China does win the AI, AI yeah. battle. What what happens? How how do they use that in the context of, you know, gaining more power, unifying itself with Hong Kong or unifying Hong Kong with itself? Um, you know, it, it's hard to really I'm not really sure how you know, how I see them using that strategically. Obviously, it will help 
to some extent, it will help to uh, get Hong Kongers, you know, or maybe it would help predict people in Hong Kong that are most likely to um, protest, for example. You know, this this is an early use of AI where you can use it to predict people's behavior. And obviously, we had a whole episode on facial recognition. Right. Once once that gets better and better, then it might not even matter if Hong Kongers are wearing masks. They might they right. might still be, um, you know, they might still be able to be found out by China. They the, yeah, their I family see. in on the mainland might, you know, still be in danger even though they covered their face because AI got so good they can figure out who is there. Right. I mean, I just saw a tweet from this uh, American reporter in China. I think his name is Matthew Brennan. But he showed this AI system in China that can recognize people's gait, meaning the way that they walk, and identify Mm -hmm. a person based on how they walk. So even Mm -hmm. if you're totally covered up as a protester, if you're Mm -hmm. walking and they recognize that pattern of walking, they can identify you. That's already deployed. There are other technologies that may or may not be in use, like someone's uh, heart rhythm, things like that. Mm -hmm. So there's all types of biometric information that Mm -hmm. is not just dependent on being able to see someone's face. So it does seem like, you know, for one, just like how it's now or never with the trade deal between the U.S. and China, it's kind of now or never for Hong Kong protesters because technology is advancing to such a degree that, you know, five years from now, it, it might be nearly impossible to organize this kind of protest, even in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. And you can be sure that China is doing everything they can strategically to clamp down on that as soon as possible. I don't think that they're going to have another Tiananmen Square incident because it would reflect so poorly on the country. Yeah. Um, but they might. I, I don't know. I, I don't it know seemed, exactly what they would uh, right. do. Well, it well maybe let's get into the future scenarios because we're already sort of starting okay. to touch on that. Yeah, let's do it. All right. So what do you think is the worst case scenario? Worst case scenario. So I broke it down by worst case for China, worst case for Hong Kongers, and worst case for the U.S. So my my worst case for China is that these protests and the demand for democracy will spread to mainland China. Mm -hmm. It seems unlikely that that would happen, given the interviews we've heard of mainlanders and their skepticism about the value in protesting for these abstract ideals as they would characterize it but it's possible the worst case for hong kong is that china imposes its rules before 2047 so they don't even get until 2047 to adjust to the chinese way of life they have to adjust right now essentially yeah and that seems actually more likely than China waiting until 2047. And I think it's also just worth thinking about if you grew up in Hong Kong from the time that it was controlled by the British and now you're like a 30-year-old, 40-year-old person Mm -hmm. and you're realizing that by 2047, you know, you'll be 
near the end of your life and the kids that are being born you know that were born since the mm-hmm. the one party two systems those kids may be totally indoctrinated by the chinese way so i think thinking about this from a generational perspective is really key because one generation yeah. that knows what it was like to live under british rule is going to be entirely different from a generation that has never known that type of freedom. Mm-hmm. It's almost the inverse of what happens in the U.S. You know, there, or I guess it's sort of the same. There are always generational divides, and it depends on what the the cultural norms are at the time that people yeah. grew up. Well, it so is like in the U.S. Okay. It is the inverse. I think you're right because in the okay. U.S., each generation tends to get more and more progressive. So like mm-hmm. in a few generations, they'll be like, I don't care, go marry your horse. And like, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's like, who gives a shit? Do whatever you want to do kind of a mentality. Yeah. But in China, mm-hmm. because they're controlling information actively, it's going to go in the opposite direction where they'll become less mm-hmm. progressive over time. Yeah, less and less free. Yeah. And then my, the final thing I'll say for my worst case is for the US, the worst case would be that Hong Kong protests continue to a point where China does need to throw down the hammer, which would result in an economic catastrophe for not only Hong Kong businesses, but also American businesses. And that doesn't put a dent in China's grip on the Communist Party's control. So the worst case for the U.S. would be, yeah, China, mainland China still has just as much control over the Hong Kongers as they would otherwise. But we also have this, you know, massive economic issue now with Hong Kong. And I guess the other worst case for the U.S. would be if this derails the trade negotiations because it's seen as more advantageous for China to just villainize, vilify the West Mm -hmm. rather than try to reach some sort of agreement. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, for the American people, obviously, if you are a true American and you believe in, in freedom and freedom of speech and freedom of the press and freedom of assembly, then the worst case for the, those Americans are the same as the worst case for Hong Kongers. It's just less freedom. And the quote comes to mind of, you know, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice and everywhere. And I think when you're dealing with one of the major world powers that's on the rise whereas the u.s might be slightly on the decline it becomes even more critical for for not just chinese not just americans but for the entire world when if you go far enough into the future yeah if china becomes the world superpower and does fulfill their 2025 plan that will be it's not like they're going to be a couple steps ahead of the next power they're going to be orders of magnitude beyond where the second place power is because once you once you're the dominator of ai technology or some of these other technologies you can seriously just create this gap that is almost on like you cannot close the gap that could be created so it's sort of scary to think about Um, i mean think of if there were like some random new technology like military technology like nanobots that can just go to any person using facial recognition and like go inside their brain and kill them 
kind of yeah. like that one episode of Black Mirror. And then China just does strategic strikes, not on all Americans, but on the Americans that have a negative view of China and same across the world. And it just mm-hmm. becomes like, oh, shit, now we're living with the same sort of fear of saying or doing anything against Beijing as mm-hmm. the people who actually live in that country. I mean, that's, you know, that's like, I'm not saying that's likely, but I'm mm-hmm. saying if you go far enough into the future, it's not unlikely that some major technological innovation will give that degree of, of uh, you know, the upper hand. Yeah, and one of the things I thought about while doing research for this podcast and also on previous episodes is, let's say that that future does happen. You and me are talking negatively. Yeah, we're going to be we'll be on the first. We, yeah, block. we'll be. We're probably <laughs> going to be targeted for for but something. We'll, hopefully, that we've it said. will at least be like old men by then. But who knows, dude? Tech, tech is progressing pretty rapidly. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, that's a personal scary thought, but also, you know, probably not that likely. We will probably remain relatively safe, at least in the confines of the U.S. Yeah. Who knows, you know, in other places where where Huawei takes over their 5G networks and they can track us anywhere and all of that. So, anyways, yeah. my, my worst case was actually fairly similar to yours. Um, it, it is that, you know, Hong Kong loses the or they you know this extradition bill gets passed like fairly soon which is just step number one of china you know dominating and you know pulling hong kong back into its grasp and you know it once it achieves something like that and it can start to threaten people or people have a sort of fear to speak out um, then I just think it's going to be a snowball effect right. where it's just, it's just fast. The, the transition to get Hong Kong back as, you know, just pretty much a city of China, it's going to be a bad situation, I think. Yeah. So once it, the mental prison has been fully constructed in each of the mm-hmm. minds of the Hong Kongers, then it's mm-hmm. pretty much been completely won. Yeah. It's like trying to go into North Korea and, basically undo the brainwashing of an entire lifetime for all of those citizens. Like Mm -hmm. we're not there yet because Hong Kong still has lots of freedom of information, but you could imagine like 20 or 40 years from now where it's a similar dynamic where you can't even speak Mm -hmm. in the same terms because you're dealing with entirely different visions of the world and of history and of events Mm -hmm. and of who's a bad guy and, moral relativism and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I'm curious to know what you think is the best case then. Best case scenario. Yeah, well, the best case for Hong Kongers and for mainland Chinese and for U.S. and for the whole world, <laughs> in my view, other than yep. maybe President Xi and the top people in the Communist <laughs> Party, yep. would be that democracy does spread beyond Hong Kong to mm-hmm. the mainland. But man, it doesn't seem likely. I got to yeah. say. Yeah, that's that was exactly my best case because if these protests can somehow spark something in the mainland and there's a little bit of a shift in the mind. Maybe there's not protests on the mainland. There's there's got to be some sort of tipping point because 
the Chinese power does not have universal control. If the people of China stood up to the government as a whole or as a majority, I don't think the Chinese government has a chance. The same way that if, if the U.S. revolted against the government. Right, because the country is its people. It's not, right. the, it's not just the leader. But they've made such a point of this sort of divide and conquer where they'll just snipe off people individually. just mm-hmm. to, They'll just disappear and then people won't even talk about it because they're like afraid to even be associated. So mm-hmm. like this, just this fear has been the biggest uh, reason why it's, they've, they haven't had massive protests since Tiananmen. And that really got, got uh, embedded in their psyche from Tiananmen. I mean, they had, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of people just shot for protesting. Yeah, I would be curious to see what the history books in China talk about Tiananmen Square, or how they talk about it. Um, right. It, <laughs> I'd suspect it has something to do with like Western agitators. <laughs> yeah, man, it's it's a little bit uh, obviously the I don't think this. And maybe we can get into the likely scenario, but, and, you know, I'll just, I'll start my likely scenario uh, right now. Most likely scenario. The, the best case seems to be one of the most unlikely scenarios to me. The one that we just talked about. The worst case seems fairly close to the likely case to me yeah i think i think china has such a grasp and such a so much power such a long-term view so much strategic power and you know it's not even necessarily um good for hong kong to separate immediately because if you think about it hong kong has zero defense budget right now because chinese can china takes over that for them so there are a lot of drawbacks to becoming an independent state for Hong Kong. Like they're they're in a relatively decent position. Well, right the, now. there's just no way they would the mainland China would ever allow that to happen. Right. Yeah. The, the, it would be a, a physical war before they became independent. Um, it, so really, the the best case is more along the lines of like we said, if the protests can spread to China. Like that's, I think that's right. the only way that Hong Kong really survives as an independent state is if China also has its own uprising um, yeah. that it has to deal with. Or if something happened, like there was a change in power and the successor to President Xi had democratic leanings and he was able to sort of slowly move things in that direction. But mm-hmm. at this point, it seems like President Xi's probably going to be there for life and he's probably got at least another 20 or 40 years under his belt and yeah by that i'm sure time, he has a yeah. very long succession plan too like a, a, right. a very detailed succession plan like if this person is not in support of the party or tries to do this they're gone immediately and he probably right. has like lines of but, people but if you look throughout history whenever things do really change up it's either a revolution of the people or it's a revolution of like the top level officials. So I agree, it's not likely, but if there's any way that they're gonna change the way they operate, it's gonna be one of those two. Mm-hmm. 
And is that sort of your likely case as well? Or well, you... that's not my likely. That's okay. that's what I think would be likely if the best case was realized. That's how right. it would happen. I see. But my likely scenario just in general of what I think is likely to occur is that China does not use force to put down the protesters. They do the mm -hmm. same sort of strategy they had with the umbrella movement where they just wait, wait out the protesters. They put a little bit of pressure here. You know, they've already put pressure on the business people who work in these companies that depend on mainland Chinese support. Mm -hmm. They'll continue to put pressure on other sectors of society. And over time, it'll just sort of fizzle out because there's only so many days you can protest without having any meaningful accomplishments. And eventually, you know, the protest will wane and then China will continue to slowly tighten its grip. And yeah. that grip will be fully tightened far before 2047. Yeah, That's yeah I totally thing. agree. I think... I think it's just very telling because China China doesn't only have power um, through force. They have they have so much other negotiating power over Hong Kong, like like defense, like all I think information it was wars. 50, yeah, information wars, but also Hong Kong is just dependent on China in general. Yeah, and, they're only, and if there yeah. was a trade war between those two, like for example, well, they're three uh, percent of the GDP. It's that's like, that's like if yeah. like Nevada tried to stand up <laughs> against the rest of the U.S. Yeah, but in terms, of, from Hong Kong's perspective, fifty-five percent of their exports are to China. Right. So that you know they they heavily depend on China well, buying their stuff. But they're it's the the protesters aren't even calling for independence from China. They're just calling right, yeah. for keeping the rights they already have. Yeah. So it's it's not like no protesters are of the mindset that they can totally break off from China. They're all just right. we want to keep the rights we already have. Please just let us keep these rights at least until 2047. It's a very reasonable set of, of requests, mm -hmm. but yeah. it's unlikely China will give an inch. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree. Yeah, and at some point we should do the, the future of China itself, but it's beyond the scope of this episode. So That'd be good to have a guest on that one. Yeah, and maybe we could get Matthew Brennan on that guy's yeah anyways thank you everyone for listening We're talk this has about been the what future has of Hong happened, Kong what is currently happening and what will inevitably happen the past the present is the future
Hey Futurists, if you've made it this far, you might be wondering who created the Hence the Future theme song. It was created by the Walden Brothers, and you can find them on Spotify. The Walden Brothers also produced the sound bites for the worst case, the best case, and the most likely future scenarios. At Hence the Future, we're always looking for ways to improve the quality of our episodes and our predictions. To that end, we're building a team of researchers to curate the most authoritative and highly vetted sources as the foundation for every episode. If you'd like to support these efforts, you can donate a small monthly amount at anchor.fm slash hence the future. And if you haven't done so already, please rate and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate your support.